The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. I'm delighted to be joined today by one of my colleagues whose work I admire and I think you'll find fascinating, Dr. Arvind Singh. Arvind is the Director of Medical Bariatrics and board certified by the American Board of Obesity Medicine and the American Board of Internal Medicine. He has transformed the Bariatric Center at Emory University Hospitals into a regional comprehensive health delivery system focusing on wellness through weight management. Furthermore, for surgical patients, Dr. Singh leads the team that helps patients with surgery readiness and lifelong care after bariatric surgery. He has written and published in the area of nutrition and pre-surgical evaluation of the bariatric surgery patient. Dr. Singh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. So there's so much I want to talk to you about today. And, you know, the patients that you see you, you do two kinds of work, even though they're, they're related. You do medical weight loss, and just uh, for our listeners, you also do pre-surgical and post-surgical um, weight counseling and, and really wellness counseling for, for patients that are looking at bariatric surgery. Um, so what I want yeah, so what I want to do is really ask you about both, like, you know, maybe starting off with medical management. Um, when people look for medical weight loss, um, what are just general principles, things that you advise people to do that you found to be very effective? Like, are there pillars um, or guidance that you recommend um, that you could share with people? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so patients come in, uh, they're either interested in a non-surgical weight management program or a surgical program. Usually they come in with some idea of which direction they'd like to head. But for those who come in uh, looking for um, non-surgical medical weight management, really it's, uh, we start off by doing a very comprehensive intake on them and try to get to know them not just in terms of their health, but in terms of their, their habits and their lifestyle. So our initial intake, we ask a lot of questions, of course, about their medical history, um, their medications, and what effect those may be having on their weight. We ask, of course, about their uh, nutrition and their activity or exercise habits, but we don't stop there. And I want to emphasize that because weight and weight-related issues are not just a uh, eat less and go exercise more issue. There's a lot of deep-rooted issues that go along with why people have weight issues. So we, I spend a lot of time going into issues regarding uh, stress in their life, um, depression, their work-related environment, their home environment, their traditions, uh, the cultural influences. Uh, we talk a lot about um, their support systems. And then I also talk a lot about their sleep, uh, sleep habits. So, yeah, I do think there are some pillars um, that I must cover every time I 
take care of these patients. Uh, so it's nutrition, activity, and then what I call my three S's, sleep, stress, and support. And then, of course, ruling out any medical-related uh, uh, causes of obesity. So I try to sort of hone in on where their deficiencies or obstacles uh, are and really target that. So in short, um, there are some sort of universal things we tell patients in terms of weight loss. And then there are also some very targeted things I tell them, uh, depending on um, their profile. That is such an important point about looking beyond just the diet and exercise. Um, I think a lot of people that get very frustrated um, are looking at their calories, looking at, you know, their apps that tell them how much they've consumed and how much they're expending, and, and the numbers don't always add up. And as you mentioned, the, the three S's, um, you know, the sleep, the stress, and the support are, are often the missing links um, when the numbers don't add up. Um, so um, I think that's such an important point. In all your recommendations, like you said, so there's there's some general principles that apply to a lot of people and then very individual specific counseling that's unique to, I'm sure, every patient that you see. Of the general principles, can you touch on some of those? Yes, absolutely. Um, if, if you take, let's say, nutrition, I'd say there are some universal, uh, I guess we could call them facts or what the preponderance of the evidence shows. And that in and of itself is an issue because there are so many mixed signals um, and miseducation out there. And I can completely understand why the public is so confused about what to eat and what not to eat. Um, but essentially from all of the research I've ever done and read, the preponderance of the evidence essentially says eat a predominantly plant-based diet, um, minimize processed foods, uh, high sodium foods. Uh, our, I mean, our diet right now is characterized by too many excesses, excess protein, if people can believe that, especially animal protein, excess fat in terms of bad fat, saturated fat, trans fats, excess sodium, excess calories. In fact, it's excess of everything, excess carbs, fats, and protein. So uh, predominantly plant-based diet. Um, other things are, I mean, just general principles. We want to eat slower, eat uh, more regulated portions, um, eat, uh, eat on a schedule. Um, everything in our body works on a schedule. We have an entire circadian rhythm and not just our sleep, but everything sort of uh, revolves around a schedule. So uh, eating, you know, roughly at the same times each day, uh, trying to eat over a span of 10 to 12 hours and then fasting the rest of the time, you know, avoiding late night eating. Um, in terms of activity, there are a few principles. I mean, really, I always tell patients, you do not have to go and get a, a gym membership to be healthy. Uh, there are plenty of ways we can find um, ways to be active in our daily life, uh, parking further away, um, taking stairs, uh, walking up and down aisles, uh, taking a 10-minute walk 
know, three times a day. You know, a lot of people don't have 30 minutes to go exercise, but studies certainly show that if you can break it up into 10 minute increments, that's just as effective as going out and exercising, you know, uh, 30 minutes at a time. Uh, there are there's a lot of data now and a very hot topic is the relationship between sleep and weight. And there's a very, very strong correlation um, with uh, quality and both quantity of sleep and its relationship to weight gain for uh, multiple reasons. So a lot of tips I give patients in terms of improving their sleep habits, um, stress management, and then support systems and how to build their support systems, how to expand their uh, support systems. So, I mean, those are some of the sort of pillars that I, uh, I guide patients on. You know, you've, you've just touched on so many really important points. You know, I'll kind of go through some of them and maybe we can delve a little deeper. So, you know, one point that you mentioned was about the circadian rhythm of all of our organs. And, you know, I think a lot of people are aware of the circadian rhythm of, you know, our day-night cycle, but maybe less known as you mentioned, is a circadian rhythm of our digestive system, of our gut bacteria. And if, you know, it, our, we're kind of programmed to eat a little more earlier in the day and our digestive system winds down later, so, you know, you can kind of jet lag, if you will, your digestive system eating a really large meal at dinner. And it touches on this hot topic of intermittent fasting. Um, what are ways you counsel your patients. So you mentioned keeping eating to a 10 to 12 hour window. Um, do you find that the timing and the size of meals at different times a day influences weight loss? Yeah, I think that's a very, very hot topic right now. But uh, yes, I mean, essentially, there are certain times, uh, especially after you eat, where your body is in the mode of storing fat, and then there's times when you, you know you avoid eating when your body is in the mode of uh, burning fat, and so you just as an, I'm almost just as important as what you eat during the day is the fact that you avoid eating late night and try to fast overnight. It's sort of a rule of thumb that I follow myself, and I try to tell my patients is if you can go to bed at a set time or generally a set time every night. And if you subtract two or two and a half hours from that, you want to start fasting then and try to fast for approximately 12 hours after that. So for a lot of people, it ends up being sort of eight to eight, 8.30 PM to 8.30 AM. And intermittent fasting or fasting even to that extent has a lot of evidence-based health benefits in terms of uh, helping your body burn fat in terms of uh, improving your immune system, uh, decreasing inflammation in your body, improving the way your body responds to insulin or reducing your insulin resistance uh, and things of that nature. And then also, uh, again, your, um, as, as you mentioned, your, your digestive system does slow down uh, uh, in the uh, evening, late evening and uh, overnight hours. Yeah, so yeah, I think that's so helpful, you know, the when just as much as the what, because again, to your initial point, going beyond just the calories in, calories out, there's so much complexity around weight loss. 
Um, so that's a really good point. And then you also mentioned you try and tell people to avoid excess, um, but maybe just excess of kind of the, the bad carbs, the bad fats, and kind of the unhealthier proteins, right? Because it's the quality rather than the quantity of macronutrients. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about what types of excess people should avoid? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, we're living in an environment where it's hard to believe that in America we can be overfed but undernourished. So we are getting too many of all macronutrients, too many carbs, too many fats, too many um, too much protein, and we're getting not enough micronutrients. So we're not getting enough vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, uh, phytonutrients, or, or, or plant-based nutrients that help slow down the aging process. And probably the number one deficiency in our diet is, is fiber. So when I talk to patients about what to eat, I start off with the premise that I'm not going to reduce or minimize foods into carbs, fats, and proteins because there are good carbs, there's good, uh, good um, fat, good protein, and there's also poor choices in each of those macronutrients. So we talk about foods and what foods we should eat, and we start off with the premise that we need to first change our concept of what a meal should look like. Um, we need to make half of our plate the veggies, and make meat the side dish, the side dish if we choose to eat meat. And then, you know, as opposed to centering our diet around the protein, which is what our parents have told us and our grandparents have told us, and eat your meat and eat your protein, it really should have been eat your veggies and then you can have this side dish of meat if you want it. So that's the premise that I start people off on. And then I really try to focus on um, healthy food choices and try to minimize reducing it to, you know, eat this types of carbs or this type of fats or this type of um, protein. But studies do show clearly that excess saturated fat, excess trans fat or hydrogenated fats are very unhealthy. Excess animal protein leads to insulin resistance. Um, and carbohydrates are not the enemy and protein should not be put on a pedestal uh, I think that's sort of how a lot of patients come in. Uh, they sort of uh, uh, put protein on a pedestal and demonize carbohydrates. Carbohydrates, um, that's, there's so many different types of carbohydrates. And when you're eating carbohydrates in terms of whole grains, legumes, um, fruits, they're coming with so many other added benefits that they've never been shown to lead to weight gain. Right. Those are just, um, you know, really helpful points because I think there, like you said, there's so much out there, you know, with various types of diets, some, you know, pretty much just saying eliminate carbs altogether. Um, and, and just like you, I've seen the same in my patients when that happens, you know, we see every other marker of health worsen, even if they are losing some weight, you know, in terms of the cholesterol, the insulin resistance, et cetera. Um, and then you also um, touched on the sleep part. Can you talk briefly about some of the dysregulation in hormones, like why that's so critical for weight loss? Yeah, I mean, when 
when we have inadequate um, quantity or quality of sleep, in essence, our body doesn't um, reset its stress, its internal stresses. So our body still feels stress and we are producing more stress hormones, um, particularly um, in the way of cortisol and um, sympathetic hormones like um, epinephrine and norepinephrine and things like that. So those, um, they raise our blood pressure, they speed our heart rate up, uh, cortisol excess leads to uh, development of central body fat, the real damaging type of body fat. It leads to cravings, uh, especially for um, uh, refined sugars. It leads, uh, lack of sleep leads to poor decision-making during the day, less energy, less activity. So there are so many levels in which um, uh, dysregulated sleep is very profoundly uh, damaging to both our health and our weight. Uh, in addition to just the hormones. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I want to switch over and talk a little bit about when a person should consider bariatric surgery. You know, being in internal medicine, I've had a lot of patients who, you know, kind of tease me that, oh, they've, they've lost 400 pounds. You know, it's just that over their lifetime, mm-hmm. every time they've lost 50 pounds, they've just regained it. And after that pattern repeating with every diet since the 1980s, you know, I often get asked, you know, should I consider surgery? Um, what is your advice? Like, when should people start to consider surgery? That's a great question. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily a, an easy answer to that. And I think it's going to be a different threshold for each person. But and this most basic, uh, the most basic answer I could give you is when people have absolutely feel like they have done everything possible that they can do to lose weight and they're at their wits end, they feel like they're at the end of the road and they have no other options, that's when they should choose you know, uh, a surgical option. Or when patients are just, when their weight has gotten to a point where it's made them what I call uh, metabolic um, time bombs. You know, they're, they're so metabolically sick um, that they really need to uh, reverse these or, or improve these, um, these metabolic uh, risk factors that they have very quickly or something, uh, a bad outcome is going to happen. Right, right. In, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, in terms of just um, weight and things like that, uh, there are certain criteria that they have to fall under in terms of their body mass index and whether they have any obesity-related comorbidities like diabetes, high blood pressure, fatty liver disease, sleep apnea, heart disease, things like that. So, I mean, those would come with an initial consult. The specifics of those I could certainly discuss um, or anybody could discuss you know, on a one-on-one visit. But, yeah, I mean, there are other criteria that have to be met. Um, patients have to be uh, committed. They have to be motivated. They have to be um, willing to comply with uh, very strict post-surgical protocols in terms of follow-up and dietary habits. Uh, they have to be willing to make the types of changes in their lifestyles that will actually make this tool, make the surgery being a tool, make it actually work. Um, yeah, they can't have other active um, 
substance abuse uh, going on at the time. They must be psychologically uh, in a good place. Um, they must, you know, they have to be good surgical candidates from a um, cardiopulmonary um, health health status. Uh, so there are other criteria that we use. An interesting term you just used is referring to the surgery as a tool. Um, and and I, you know, certainly know a lot of my patients are contemplating that. You know, wonder about you know, how quickly the weight comes off and your point about this is a tool, you know, really there's a lot of hard work that happens after the surgery. It's not just getting through the surgery um, and a lot of, you know, effort towards eating healthier. It's a lifestyle plus the surgery. Um, do you see, you know, difference in outcomes depending on how people manage their efforts towards weight loss postoperatively? Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate the fact that you emphasize that. But absolutely, I mean, surgery is a tool. Uh, you have to practice using it. Uh, you have to learn how to use it, just like you'd have to learn how to use a set of golf clubs if somebody gave you golf clubs for the first time. And so I think uh, just to back up a little bit, if anybody's choosing you know, a surgical path, I would recommend definitely looking into a place that treats it, uh, treats surgery like a tool. I mean, extreme is, you know, example would be the patients who go to Mexico and get weight loss surgery done, and then they come back here and they're absolutely lost. And then they're struggling with various complications, deficiencies, um, you know, and they're coming back for support. So, uh, you know, one thing a center has to be is comprehensive in terms of its education pre-surgically and its education and follow-up post-op. So absolutely, patients do better if they use this tool properly. And it's a lot of it's going to be about preparing yourself to make changes that um, are, do, do things in a different way than we've been doing for our entire lives, like you know, separating eating and drinking. Uh, limiting your portions to a very small amount, but yet eating consistently throughout the day, um, eating slower, um, you know, using smaller plates, uh, things like that. Um, so there's a lot of changes that have to be made in order for somebody to really be successful. One point that a lot of my patients are apprehensive about that I get asked, and I'm sure you do as well, is how their life will be affected in social settings, you know, because food has become such a part of our culture. You know, we celebrate birthdays by going out for food. We meet our friends over food. And people, you know, certainly worry that their social networking may change as a result of, you know, needing to make changes in their dietary intake. Um, How do you see people adjust to that change postoperatively? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the main thing I would emphasize is that once you have surgery and you're healed from the surgical process, you're not necessarily deprived of eating anything. So there's nothing that you necessarily have to completely eliminate from your diet. And you're just going to be eating a lot smaller portions of everything. And hopefully if you've been educated the right way, You'll be eating the right proportions of each type of food, but it's, there's no elimination. Um, and really, 
any long-term uh, diet that we follow, there's no need to eliminate anything. So you can still enjoy all the sort of fruits of, uh, no pun intended, but fruits of um, the social settings and going out to eat dinner. Um, so your, your life uh, doesn't necessarily change in that respect, but you will be, you know, eating smaller portions, you'll be eating slower, and you won't be, you know, you'll be avoiding drinking and eating at the same time. But nothing necessarily has to be eliminated as long as it's, you know, consumed in a very controlled manner. And that also touches on another, you know, frequently asked question that I get. And again, I'm sure you do as well. You know, some of um, the people that get the surgery initially are very successful with weight loss, but over years um, have some weight regain. Um, whereas others are able to maintain that weight loss indefinitely. Um, do you have advice to people considering the surgery on how to have the best long-term outcome? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely evidence of, uh, of some weight regain. Um, but patients, and to be honest, um, that's part of the screening process that goes into a, a thorough pre-surgical um, program, uh, you know, the top three reasons long-term that people regain weight, the top three would be depression, depression, depression. So mental health stability is a major thing we focus on pre-surgically. Every patient needs to go through an extensive psychological evaluation. And then we get to know patients over the period of three to six months that we're following them. And so, um, that's a, a big thing that we try to address up front that needs to be you know, addressed uh, sort of more um, openly in our society in general and also very specifically in this patient population. Uh, you could imagine the uh, prejudices this uh, population of patients has gone through, have gone through um, the biases, uh, just the, the psychosocial impact of their weight uh, and what it's uh, the impact has had on them their whole lives. So, and then you take away the, the food addiction. They can't physically eat this much food. So patients get depressed. They actually have issues with their new body image. Their relationships change because of insecurities on, you know, one part or the other. Um, they sometimes, uh, uh trade addictions. So a, a lot goes on. Um, you know, a lot of changes are happening. Um, so that needs to be addressed uh, very, very aggressively long-term. And again, it all goes back to the five pillars I, I talked about in, even in non-surgical patients, your, your diet, your activity, your stress levels, your sleep habits, and your support systems. That is the key to long, your lifestyle habits. That is the key to long-term, long-term success, whether you have surgery or not. And, and I also want to talk about the, the good news of the surgery, right? So the successes, um, you know, the blood sugar certainly drops. I've seen people reverse diabetes. Um, in terms of health outcomes after surgery, um, what are some positive health outcomes that you see? I mean, it's probably some of the most amazing, profound uh, things I've seen in medicine have occurred in, in our post-surgical patients. And there's a lot of uh, studies out there and a lot of studies now finally coming out that are tracking patients, not just for, you know, two years out from surgery, but five years, seven years, eight years, 10 years. Now the data is coming out. Um, and 
you know, if you're comparing surgical patients to non-surgical patients, the rates of resolution of uh, diabetes are, are higher. Um, the rates of resolution of hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, resolution of your cholesterol panel, uh, your sleep apnea, all of these, your fatty liver, all of these uh, obesity-related comorbidities, uh, they all dramatically improve with, um, with successful weight loss uh, in, uh, in surgical patients. And some of these uh, changes occur very profoundly and very rapidly, uh, partly because of the lower calorie intake, but also partly because of the uh, hormonal changes that are going on um, after surgery. And the hormonal changes, are, do you see a difference between the gastric sleeve and the gastric bypass? Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of the hormonal changes, the gastric sleeve is simply a uh, restrictive uh, surgery. So it's restricting the amount of food you can take in. And the essence of it is uh, about 75 to 80% of your stomach is removed from your body, taken out. And uh, the, the portion of it that's removed is the portion of it that produces your hunger hormone. Uh, which is called ghrelin. So a lot of patients uh, have uh, don't feel uh, hunger after um, sleeve surgeries, and this can last for you know it's variable, but it can last for six uh, six months, twelve months, uh, eighteen months, up to two years. Now that hunger does come back after a period of time because the the, the, re- the remainder of your stomach that's in place it starts to uh, regenerate and compensate for that uh, ghrelin loss. So it does start to come back. And that's when the habits really need to be perfected in order to have good success. Uh, in terms of the gastric bypass, the gastric bypass is still a predominantly restrictive procedure, but it also has a component of malabsorption. So the, um, you lose weight not only from reducing your intake of calories, but also less absorption of your calories because you're, again, you're creating a small stomach pouch, but you're also rerouting some of your intestines. So there is thought to be some favorable hormonal changes in your gut hormones that improve the way, improves the way your insulin responds to what you eat. And, and some of that may be responsible for some of the weight loss effects we're seeing with uh, some of the more dramatic weight loss effects we're seeing with gastric bypass surgery. Mm-hmm. That, that's really helpful. Um, I, I want to thank you for your time and thank you for all the work that you do, just advancing our understanding of obesity um, and the whole field of just weight management. Um, are there any um, final pieces of advice you want to share with our listeners? Well, first of all, I want to thank you, and it was my pleasure being here, and I, I really appreciate you um, trying to get this message out there and the word out there to help educate our, you know, our citizens and our population. Our, but, um, you know, um, you don't – obesity is a very, very complex issue, and uh, somebody who tells you to uh, – push away your plate and go exercise more. That's really an outdated way of looking at obesity. There's so much that goes into why we eat what we eat, uh, how the, the, the calories that we eat are processed. Um, 
there's so much in terms of uh, our built environment, our work environment, our school environment, uh, the role our government plays. So there's, there's so many layers uh, to this uh, really well epidemic and pandemic that we're seeing um, that, you know, it's not just a uh, issue of somebody being uh, overeating and being, la- uh, being unmotivated and lazy. So that if I could get out one message, it would be that. I think that's such a great point. And I would encourage any of our listeners who've been struggling to, to view obesity more as a disease, just like we do high blood pressure or high cholesterol, and, and to get support and help because it's not easy tackling all the complexity by yourself. And and I think, you know, the times have changed in terms of the stigma associated with it because it, it really does change your entire body. And, um, and there are programs out there that um, I think a lot of people could benefit from. Absolutely. Good. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by the Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness Center at Emory. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.